0: Devastating news again hit the world of professional wrestling this week as the Iron Sheik, Hossein, Sazro Ali, Vaziri died Wednesday at age 81. Simply put, the Iron Sheik was one of the greatest, and many will argue the greatest villain in wrestling history. He won the first battle royal in WWF history, and years later ended Bob Backlund's 1,470-day reign as WWF world heavyweight champion. He also solidified the split of WWF from the NWA with that and remains, to this day, the only Iranian champion in WWE history. Now, that title change over Backlund and the Iron Sheik's villainous character set the stage for the crowning of Hulk Hogan as the biggest babyface in professional wrestling history, or at least in modern history, there are arguments to be made about wrestling in earlier years. He won the title off Sheik one month after he had taken it from Backland, officially kickstarting Hulkamania and that 1,474-day title reign. Now, many have said Hogan would not be Hogan without Sheik, and WWF would have never reached its incredible level of success in the mid-1980s without their program. That has always been an inarguable fact to me. Sheik made Hogan. He was the perfect foil for Hogan at the time. And then he went on to serve in the exact same role, basically, against Sergeant Slaughter. Sheik, along with Nikolai Volkoff, were absolute heat magnets, waving the Iranian and Soviet Union flags in unison against all different American counterparts. They won the tag team titles off the US Express at WrestleMania 1, which was the second title change in wrestling pay per view history. And they wrestled at the infamous WrestleMania 3 and the Pontiac Silverdome as well. Sheik was part of Cyndi Lauper's rock and wrestling. He went back and forth between WCW and WWF in some of the years that followed, but eventually returned to WWF during the Gulf War as Colonel Mustafa to actually team with Slaughter as Iraqi sympathizers. I always found it weird that such a legend returned to a company with a completely different gimmick, but it did ultimately work out because Slaughter turned on Sheik in a huge babyface moment. Sheik always remained part of WWE, and he was largely taken care of financially by Vince McMahon. He showed up frequently during the Attitude Era. He co-managed the Sultan and Tiger Ali Singh at different times. Most notably, he got babyface cheers for maybe the first time in his career by winning the gimmick battle royal at WrestleMania X7 at age 59, which is a match you should absolutely watch if you have not seen it and he eventually got inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2005. I learned so much more about the Iron Sheik after his wrestling career than I knew of him as an actual wrestler. I was a frequent Howard Stern Show listener, and still am to this day, and Sheik for a period of time became a huge character there on that show. He would always talk shit about Hulk Hogan and Brian Blair. He would yell about breaking backs and making people humble, and he was Very profane while he did it. And he also shared plenty about his personal life as well. He was a practicing Shia Muslim and rose to fame wrestling for Iran in the 1968 Olympics. Then he eventually became an assistant coach on the Team USA wrestling squad for the 1972 Olympics, while also helping train American wrestlers before and after that. It was while he was working with that 72 team that Vern Gagne in the AWA recruited him as a professional wrestler. He actually trained alongside in the same class as Ric Flair under Gagne and Billy Robinson, and he crafted his gimmick ultimately in honor of the original Sheik, who is, of course, the uncle of ECW's Sabu. He used the Persian clubs as part of his trajectory toward fame and challenged baby faces all over the country to take the test and try to lift them like he could. And if you don't know what I'm referring to when it comes to the Persian clubs and the Iron Sheik, go on YouTube and you can find plenty of clips about it. And he ultimately wrestled everyone, including all the names we mentioned, Antonio Inoki, Dusty Rhodes, Ricky Steamboat, Pat Patterson, Chief J. Strongbow. I mean, the list really goes on. Sheik did have his problems, particularly with cocaine, which cut the height of his career short. He had to deal with the murder of his daughter, which led to some of those drug problems as well, or at least the continuation of them. But he, even in his later days, remained close with many in the industry, most believed that The shit-talking he did was out of love and just kind of trying to keep that kayfabe heel character. But he did hold his grudges. And a fun fact about Sheik is he was the best man in Mean Gene Okerlund's wedding. And for those who only know him from Twitter, I hate to break it to you, but unfortunately, it was his managers running that account on his behalf, speaking like him, rather than, of course, the Sheik himself. It was clearly a full career and life for the Iron Sheik. Again, perhaps the greatest villain in the history of professional wrestling and undoubtedly one of the sport's most iconic figures who will long be remembered. Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King Adam Silverstein here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 451 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week across AEW and. NXT here's a spoiler alert for the remainder of this show both AEW and NXT delivered big time episodes this week and I'm not even only talking about Dynamite and NXT on Tuesdays yes the Silver King folks actually enjoyed AEW Rampage on Friday what a miracle nevertheless we have a ton to discuss on today's podcast as usual Let's not waste much more time. Allow me to remind you off the top that this show is all about defy. So please remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. And if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. You can also remember to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, highlights, analysis. All that good stuff again on Twitter at getting overcast. And one more reminder for you. I happen to love the number five. Consider contributing $5 a month, become an official getting overhead over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You get bonus audio, news posts, and so much more, but more important than all of that, you support the show and you get to interact directly with the Silver King and vintage Chris Vanini. Speaking of Chris He was able to do something that I haven't even done, despite the fact that I live in Florida and I'm about two and a half hours away from the Performance Center. He attended NXT in person for the first time, not a takeover, not a premium live event, but a regular NXT show. He got the opportunity to do it, and you will hear from him later on this show. He sent in a couple of his thoughts from Orlando He's not live with me today, but nevertheless, you will hear Chris later in the show. We are going to kick things off, though, with AEW. We're going to talk Rampage and Dynamite separately, but before we even get to that, a quick reminder that we do have timestamps in the episode descriptions, so you can always check that if you only happen to be an NXT viewer, you want to jump over to that, if you listen to the show in two parts, whatever the case might be, just remember those timestamps are there, but I do hope you listen to the entire episode. Program. So with all of that said, let's kick things off with AEW, but specifically AEW Rampage, which presented a special championship Friday show. Now, if memory serves, this is going to be the first time in the history of this podcast that we're going to discuss Rampage separately from Dynamite. And there is a specific reason for that, which is because Rampage on Friday was unlike any prior episode that the company put out previously. It was given that Championship Friday moniker with four title matches on the show. Now, none of them involved AEW titles, but the result for me was maybe a top five episode of Rampage ever, maybe even better than that, yet it was simultaneously one that had almost nothing at all to do with the AEW product in the ring. Not because their performers weren't on the show, some of them were, but because the title matches all happened without much rhyme or reason to them. It was just an hour of straight wrestling. And let me be clear again, that's not a bad thing. Like I said, it was a great show, super enjoyable, far better than most of the dog shit we normally get on Rampage. In fact, it was better also than I believe every version of Battle of the Belts that they have ever done. But it is simultaneously fair to point out that the only reason Rampage was good was because well, it wasn't really AEW outside a couple of backstage segments. It was pure wrestling without really any storytelling. Now, apparently, Brian Danielson had a hand in booking the show, which is an interesting note. With all of that said, let's get to the four matches that happened on Rampage, and then we'll get into AEW Dynamite, which of course was fully AEW, and also a good show, but for a completely different reason. Although Technically, there were also good matches on that program as well. So, in terms of Rampage, we had a Triple A Mega Championship, L.E.O. Del Vikingo uh, against Commander Andralistico. Obviously, this was an incredible match from an athletic standpoint. All the guys hit their signature high flying moves with Vikingo once again being the MVP simply because he does things that no one else can do and few even attempt. The craziest spot may have been Commander doing a tightrope 450 splash. I only say that. Because we've seen Vikingo do the springboard 630 centon off the middle rope through a table outside before. This was probably his best execution of that move that at least I've ever seen. But really, this this, this match was all these guys doing what they always do just in an order that made it a triple threat. Nevertheless, he won after he hit that move, uh, countering into a pinning combination for the 1-2-3. I believe he pinned Jalistico. Now, the commentary during this match was frustrating as hell. It was basically Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone exclaiming over and over again how amazing and incredible the wrestlers were. They didn't, like, call the action or, like, give us any story. I mean, it was all action and no story. Again, that's not a problem for me because the action was fucking ridiculously awesome. This was clear four stars A-minus, just incredibly fun from bell to bell, and as exciting a way as you can kick off a TV show wrestling-wise. Uh, The NJPW TV title was on the line, Zack Sabre Jr. against Action Andretti. I've been so removed from New Japan this year, I didn't even realize they had a TV title. That's my fault. I presume it kind of fills some of the void left from merging the Intercontinental with the World title. Nevertheless, Sabre got Andretti in a really nasty butterfly submission, wrenching him all the way back on his arms for the win. Extremely solid, 3.5 stars and a B, and commentary was way, way better during this than they were the AAA Mega Match, uh, NJPW Strong Women's Title was on the line. Willow Nightingale against Emmy Sakura. Willow hit a pounce and a cannonball, plus a huge lariat and the Doctor Bomb for the win. It remains cool to see Willow get such strong—no pun intended. I just kind of noticed that I had that note at the same time as the name of the title. Uh, but it, it remains cool for her to see her get strong reactions. I'm in 3.25 stars and a B. And then lastly, the main event was the ROH Pure Championship katsouris Sabata against Lee Moriarty. Pure matches are an acquired taste, but I personally enjoy them. I loved the finish here more than the match. Shibata straight up put Moriarty to sleep, then hit a PK right under his neck and just pinned his ass. He retained the title. I gave it 3.25 stars and a B. Daniel Garcia entered after the bell to stare down Shibata, and nothing else really happened before the show ended. I presume that match will be on the next Ring of Honor show. So like I said, I fully enjoyed this rampage. It was probably the first time I have watched it front to back without fast forwarding other than commercials in a year. Like it was just fun. And look, if AEW decides to turn Rampage into this once collision starts, like you have Dynamite and Collision, which are telling all your stories for AEW and you're doing things back and forth between those shows and Rampage every single week is just four quality wrestling matches that get the crowd hyped, don't really have much rhyme or reason Sometimes titles are on the line. Sometimes it's just two good wrestlers going at it. Then that gives me a reason to tune in as opposed to watching a show that's been a throwaway with half-assed creative, which is what Rampage has been for at least a year, if not longer. So again, you want to just give me four good wrestling matches every Friday night? I'm going to DVR that show and at some point during that week, I will watch it. I did this time and I very much enjoyed Rampage. Now, moving over to AEW Dynamite, a shit ton happened on that show as well, but not just regarding AEW going forward, but also Forbidden Door. And I do have a couple notes about NJPW Dominion as well, which took place earlier this month. So Brian Danielson during Dominion last week challenged Kazuchika Okada to a match at Forbidden Door through a video promo. The term dream match, look, it gets thrown around a lot. This is the definition of it Master Chef, Lord of the Kitchen Cupboard. I want to leave meat on the bone here to discuss this more in depth on our ultimate preview ahead of that show later this month. But when Brian went to AEW, this was the hope that the fruits of him going over there would allow him to have matches like this outside of the AEW roster. And it's really nice to finally see it happen. It also makes sense now why Brian has been treated in bubble wrap over the last month, two months. Not because he's injured or they're protecting him from an injury he currently has. They wanna make sure this guy stays healthy for this co-main event dream match showdown, which you can bet Danielson Okada absolutely is. So on Dynamite, we had Blackpool Combat Club against Chaos, John Moxley got Rocky Romero in a bulldog choke, and then a rear naked choke for a submission victory. Wheeler Yuta continued to murder Chuck Taylor with hammer elbows, completely through the bell and completely through their arms being raised as well. The Elite minus Kenny Omega then cut a backstage promo, challenging the BCC next week, three on three. Brian, who was on commentary, accepted it immediately. He was the best part of really the entire segment. I did like the intensity that we got from Yuta, and I do like the way Blackpool Combat Club is operating these days, but Brian on commentary, just the way he kind of told stories and talked about the Okada match, that is what drew me into this segment more than anything else. Now, by virtue of Will Ospreay beating Lance Archer at Dominion, he became number one contender for the IWGP United States Championship currently held by Kenny Omega. Now, this is going to be their second showdown because Omega beat him for the title in January at Wrestle Kingdom 17 in a clear five-star match that may well be the match of the year when all is said and done. I mean, there have been great matches in WWE and AEW that we've talked about. But when you watch Omega Osprey 1, it is really tough to say that anything else we've gotten since then has been markedly better than it. It was near perfection. So we have this as a one two punch for Forbidden Door Brian Okada and Omega Osprey, which legitimately may wind up being the best co main event in wrestling history from a match quality standpoint. It definitely has the ceiling to be that. And we're now to the point where I really don't care what else they put on the card because these two matches make it worthwhile. In fact, unless there is something on the card that is just incredibly eye-catching and it just really makes you you know, think and be excited for it because it's a matchup you didn't think you'd get or whatever the case, I'm going to spend the entire show waiting for these two matches. That's how big they are and that's how excited I am for them. So, great booking. We've always said Tony Khan, he can make matches. There's no question about it. Um the question will be what are the storylines going in and will we get more than just these are two pairs of great wrestlers who are going to be wrestling. Okada and Bryan don't have much of a storyline. Omega and Osprey do because it's centered around a title. So, we'll see what they do over the ensuing weeks. If I had to take a guess, Omega retains over Osprey, and Osprey comes back and beats him in the third meeting at all in, given it's going to be in London. That's a short turnaround for a trilogy, especially one of this magnitude, but they're trying to sell pay-per-views and tickets and gain share in the market. And these guys together are straight up magic. So it's going to be interesting to see if that's what they do and really what transpires over the next couple of months. By the way, I usually do full breakdowns of Dominion every year, just like I do with Wrestle Kingdom. I just didn't really find this year's card important enough to do it. Really, the only match I would suggest going out of your way to find and watch is the never open weight tag team title match with Blackpool Combat Club against Okada, Tomohiro Ishii, and Hiroshi Tanahashi, the best six-man I've seen in a long time from NJPW, really the best six-man I've seen in a long time anywhere. So make sure you go watch that mask. The rest of the show, for me, skippable. Konosuke Takeshka beat a jobber in a short match while AEW played clips of him and Don Callis turning on the Elite on the big screen during the entire bout. Callis got booed when he grabbed the mic, as did Takeshka while speaking in Japanese. It was basically identical to last week, except with fewer people and lower audio. The heat is nice, but it felt natural last week, and this week it felt manufactured. MJF hit the ring, getting cheap heat immediately by talking shit about Colorado, and then he called himself the devil again. Then Adam Cole interrupted with MJF cutting off the entrance before the Bay Bay part. MJF called Cole worthy competition, saying he thought Ring of Honor sucked, except for Cole. Then MJF put over Cole's entire career, saying Shawn Michaels handpicked him for that promotion. He was the best champion in that brand's history, and that was undisputed. MJF added that he knew Cole would make his way to AEW, and they'd finally get to fight, but is disappointed at what he has now become. He said Cole went from being a playboy to a gamer who avoids the sun, his body is now frail, and his balls are firmly in Britt Baker's purse. MJF pointed out how AEW put so much effort into making Cole look cool, but it keeps failing while all they do for MJF is ring the bell. It went from boring, cheap heat to finally what MJF does best, is the best way I can describe this. MJF then said he heard a rumor that Cole jumped to AEW because Vince McMahon did not believe he had top guy potential, so he added, big fan, by the way, about McMahon, which was hysterical and actually popped me. MJF said he thought the old man finally lost his marbles when he heard that, but now he thinks Vince was right. Cole shot back with MJF's fiance leaving and suggested he piss in a cup taking a shot at the fact that he's clearly on steroids or HGH or something. Cole swears he's garnered respect backstage while no one respects MJF because he's a coward of a champion. Cole then goaded him into a title match, which we later learned would be an eliminator match next week on Dynamite. So the champion accepted a title challenge, yet the challenger wasn't given a title opportunity. You gotta help me make that make sense. Now, obviously this was an excellent confrontation, You can have opinions about the WWE references once again from MJF. My problem historically with AEW is when they do it so frequently that it feels forced just to kind of get cheap pops. We haven't gotten too much of that recently, at least that I can remember to their credit. Here, it is naturally part of Cole's story, and it's a way in which MJF could get under his skin. So I found it to be appropriate. I do find it interesting that they're willing to say Shawn Michaels and Vince McMahon, but they're not willing to say NXT or WWE. I also found it interesting that MJF here basically said Vince McMahon's opinion of Adam Cole was far more important than Tony Khan's opinion of Adam Cole, which yes, I know he's a heel and I know he's doing the storyline about the contract in 2024, but you're still putting that on your television. I don't know that I would have been so thrilled about that or that I would have approved it if I was Tony Khan. There's not really that much analysis to do other than pointing out that both guys delivered on the mic. MJF was stronger. Cole going for the jugular with the piss test line was awesome. And Cole was a lot more authentic and natural, whereas MJF was really forcing the issue with what he was saying. I did for a while think Cole was being built upon his his return to take down MJF and be a big-time babyface champion for AEW. But doing the match this quickly on regular TV with Cole only having one feud win under his belt, it has me somewhat reconsidering that prediction. Now, perhaps it's the first of multiple matches. MJF cheats to win, Cole gets bumped to the back of the line, then he wins a couple more feuds and challenges again in the fall. That could work. Or perhaps Cole wins the Eliminator and actually gets a title match with MJF. But then if you do that, you would think MJF would win the title match and it would be one-to-one then they may have to do a third rubber match, and then you're getting into rematch territory. Or perhaps, and I hate to put, even put this out there, folks, perhaps they're going to put the title back on CM Punk sooner than later and just skip over Cole and go back to him six, nine, 12 months from now. Could you imagine if they do that? All in all, this was everything you could want from their first face to face. It does seem to be happening too soon, as Cole literally just came back. Again, If it is not the start of a story, then it's too soon. But Cole barely won a singles feud. He did so in an awful unsanctioned match, so it didn't even count on the record. The feud is exciting, but you have to admit the timing is odd. We're going to have to see how it plays out. And I will also say before I forget, it did feel a little bit like a rehash of MJF versus former WWE guy, which is the vast majority of his feuds and what they have been over the last like three years. Also, MJF versus guy I used to idolize, but I no longer do because I'm a piece of shit. Like it's, it's kind of the same thing every single time. Not quite missionary position just yet, but pretty close to it. And finally, nearly every MJF feud starts with the hottest segment possible, an absolute back and forth promo teardown. And then as it continues, it never really seems to rekindle that initial feeling. So we'll have to see what happens here. This was mostly positive, but there are some concerns that obviously I just addressed. Now, Tony Khan made his 147th consecutive announcement, this one being the main event for the initial AEW collision episode. It is FTR and CM Punk against Bullet Club and Samoa Joe. The pregnant pauses attempting to create suspense for him to say the name CM Punk in this announcement were absolutely eye-rolling. There's nothing like a match with zero storyline. It's what AEW, you can make an argument, does best, half sarcasm, half serious. And that's what's happening here. So there's going to be a match with CM Punk on the first AEW collision. Ricky Starks fought Jay White in the main event. Strong back-and-forth action as one would expect. Blade Runner got countered with Starks eventually hitting a spear. He followed with Rochambeau, and an obvious effort to clip the referee with White's feet. The Guns then slithered into the ring behind Starks to hit him with 310 to Yuma before running out of the arena. White then lifted Starks for Blade Runner with the referee slowly counting one, two, three. Juice Robinson walked down celebrating after the bell and then AEW Dynamite went off the air. The Guns are a perfect addition to Bullet Club. They get a full faction with a team so White can ideally concentrate on the main event scene and Robinson can focus on mid-card feuds. Plus, the guns are absolute shithead heels, which is such a great fit for especially White and Robinson in this version of Bullet Club. This is finally coming together, though I will say all of that momentum that Starks had, that he kind of lost, and then seemed to start getting back by feuding with these guys, it's again been killed by the fact that he's gotten his ass kicked in another feud with absolutely... Nobody having his back, not even this Action Andretti character. So is it a small price to pay for a real Bullet Club faction? Probably. It's going to depend to to see if Starks gets any backers, if he's able to take them down at any point, and really what is next for Ricky. The international championship was on the line, Orange Cassidy against Swerve Strickland. I got to say, I'm not really sure what exactly that ski mask is that Swerve wears every time he enters but it is so dumb looking for an otherwise cool looking guy. This opened the show. Swerve took a huracarana over the ropes by landing on his feet and putting his hands in his pockets in a total swag move. Orange hit a bunch of his signatures and diving DDTs off the steel steps and the top rope. Orange punch and beach break led to a great false finish. Swerve followed with a kick to the head and the Swerve stomped for another false finish. Orange countered a JML driver into an O'Connor roll. Swerve countered back and grabbed the tights but Orange countered one more time, also grabbing the tights' inappropriate retribution and got the win and title retention. There's no question, folks, this right here was a straight-up banger. Mogul Embassy attacked immediately after the bell, then the lights went out with Darby Allen and Sting appearing in the ring and the other guys all somehow winding up outside of it. This was a much more badass save from Darby and Sting than we normally get from them. Fantastic match. I'm right between four and 4.25. I'm gonna lean towards the latter. 4.25 stars and an A. We finally got the return of storytelling with Orange's hand, the finish protected Swerve, and it was just an incredibly high-energy way to start the show. I will say, though, and we talked about this last week where I thought a title change was possible here, it kind of felt like Swerve going over would have been the right move. This is a fantastic title reign that we're currently getting from Cassidy. It's really one of the best in AEW's history, and I presume the only reason they didn't change it here is because they wanted to do it on a bigger show, but I'm not necessarily sure there's anyone better than Swerve to be the next international champion, and I do hope ultimately he is the one who wins it off of Orange. Jungle Boy and Hook fought Drillistico and Preston Vance in a Texas Tornado tag team match. Ropes and chains were used early and often. Vance got busted open, I think hard way, on the side of the head. It was gnarly. Drillistico's mask half ripped off and he just continued. Jungle Boy leveled Vance with a chair shot. Then Hook took him off the apron with a T-bone suplex through a table. They stood up and were absolutely covered head to toe in blood. Jungle Boy tapped Drillistico out with snare trap and Sook submitted Jose with red rum. This was an absolute pleasant surprise for me. Honestly, I'm shocked how much I enjoyed it. Completely came out of nowhere. It was a seven-minute sprint hardcore match. I'm not sure if they're going to run these guys as a tag team, but it should absolutely be considered after this. Neither of them can talk, but both of them can wrestle. They're equal sized. It would be pretty interesting. The TBS championship was on the line. Chris Statlander against Anna Jay. You may ask Silver King, what did Anna Jay do to deserve another title opportunity? You can ask me that 10,000 times, go on I'm never going to have an answer for you. This was back in the typical time slot. Taya Valkyrie again watched from backstage despite already losing consecutive TBS title opportunities, stat one with a Tombstone driver in what I thought was a mediocre match. It was then announced that Britt Baker, Sky Blue, Mercedes Martinez, and Nyla Rose would have a four-way on Rampage with the winner becoming number one contender and getting an AEW women's title match next week on Dynamite. First of all, Nyla literally just lost a TBS title match. Sky and Martinez have done absolutely nothing to be worthy of this opportunity. Two of the four are heels, so obviously Baker is going to win. The graphic even had Baker like front and center, and the other three kind of grouped together behind her. Tony Storm and Ruby Soho later cut a promo about it backstage, with Tony saying that she's the greatest AEW Women's Champion ever. Like, talk about not giving a shit about the women's division. Like, there wasn't even effort put into this. This is as lazy as it possibly could have been. This is for crap. I actually meant to use this one. Sorry. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. Uh, Jeff Jarrett's crew, still without a name, was angry on Rampage over being suspended due to their actions at Double or Nothing. Jay Lethal said Aubrey Edwards deserves a suspension too. Jarrett praised them for getting heat. Mark Briscoe then came up saying they won't actually be suspended because he negotiated an ass-kicking instead. So it seems like we're getting Mark and Aubrey against Jeff and Karen? But that wasn't announced for either of the upcoming shows. Aubrey tried to choke Karen briefly, then they cut to commercial. For me, this is one of those deals like, I recognize it's cool for Aubrey, and I'm happy for her that she gets to be involved in an angle, while simultaneously feeling like, I just don't give a shit about it at all. Christian Cage walked out of a locker room where you could hear Luchasaurus grunting. The door eventually opened, and Brock Anderson was laid out with fake blood on his head. I forgot he existed. So the feud is now all about Anderson instead of, you know, the TNT champion, Wardlow, who again, wasn't on the show. The match will probably be solid when it happens. The storyline is absolute shit. And lastly, Hardy Party introduced Ethan Page as Matt Hardy's new employee. Matt made him apologize to Isaiah Cassidy, then promised him that he would not treat him like shit like the firm did to Matt. Hardy promised to get rid of his ego and make him a better man. Still not anything that is exciting to me as a viewer, but I like the babyface direction of like trying to make Ethan better. Page as a babyface could get over huge because he has such strong mic skills. But what's extremely weird is that later on Dynamite, a trios match was announced for Rampage that featured Ethan Page teaming with Lee Moriarty and Big Bill, as in his old teammates before Hardy won the contract in a group that the Hardys dissolved because they won the firm deletion. How does that make sense? Why is he teaming with them in this match? I I just could not figure out the booking whatsoever. So yes, a couple issues here at the end, but largely a very entertaining edition of AEW Dynamite. I already talked about Rampage before. It does seem like the company has significant momentum moving into Forbidden Door, all in, possibly all out, which has not been officially announced yet. And really, we're just going to need to see how this continues developing. Uh, Next week is going to be really interesting. I'm curious about that Eliminator match, the women's title match. I kind of want to see how that unfolds. And I do want to know whether Forbidden Door is actually going to have storylines or just matches. Are NJPW talent just going to show up on the two shows ahead of it and just kind of start building some really short, quick angles? Are they going to do more than that? you know, as of right now, and it's still early, you know, as we tape this podcast, it's only June 8th. I think there's 17 days before Forbidden Door, but you do need to kind of get going here. And the top two matches, they're going to be such high quality that they don't really need storylines, but the rest of the card will. And as of right now, there is no rest of the card. So we will find out what is coming for Forbidden Door, possibly all in, in the coming weeks. All right, so last but certainly not least this week, we are going to break down NXT. As I mentioned, vintage Chris Vanini was down in Orlando and actually got the opportunity to attend this week. So he sent in some audio clips as a bit of a digest from Orlando. I'm going to break down NXT and kind of insert him into the show. Best I can because we taped these separately. Some of the points he makes may be repetitive to things that I say. Nevertheless, we're going to go ahead and break down NXT and give this a shot. I've never actually done it this way before, but I'm sure it will work out one way or another. Baron Corbin opened NXT kind of surveying the backstage area and calling for his music. He got a promo about the old days of NXT, how they built the brand and made it themselves compared to the way superstars now have bigger egos and basically expect call-ups without achieving much. He said his goal was to make the soft youngsters regret signing WWE contracts. Corbin talked shit about Carmelo Hayes when Isla Draganov interrupted, saying he was focused on the NXT title and would go through Corbin to get it if he had to, so he challenged him immediately. He unveiled a huge bruise near his abdomen, and it seemed like the match was set. As Droganov left, though, Trick Williams attacked Corbin and clotheslined him over the top rope as retribution for Melo. During the ensuing commercial break, Braun Breaker attacked Dragunov and seemingly injured his arm. Now, this was one of the hotter starts to NXT that we've gotten in some time. Corbin obviously brings the legitimacy, but him squaring off with Dragunov and Williams consecutively created some like intriguing options before it became obvious that he was going to fight Hayes sooner than later. There was nothing different from Corbin here than what we get on the main roster, though he was completely believable in his comments about NXT, and it wasn't really as grating to listen to him because you kind of believed what he was saying. So it actually kind of felt like he had a real gripe and a reason for being a heel, whereas in the main roster, oftentimes you felt like it was all kind of put on. And what looked to be a match against Droganov wound up being booked for Williams instead. So we got Corbin against Trick. Williams sold a knee after running into the announce table, and Corbin attacked it. Trick kicked out of deep six, and dodged Baron into the post. He tried a roundhouse kick only for his knee to give out, with Corbin hitting end of days for the win. Williams was heavily protected by the booking, and he looked good going against a guy his size that has plenty of main roster experience. After the bell, Corbin then called out Dragunov for next week. The weirdest part of this was Corbin still using the Las Vegas-style music, which no longer has anything to do with his character. The entire point of him being down in NXT should be to refresh his gimmick alongside working with younger talent. And they knew for at least a week, probably 10 days at a minimum, that he was going to come down there. So to not have a new theme ready for him is just kind of ridiculous. This was largely successful, though, and Trick was definitely elevated in the moment from working with him. So let's go check in on Chris and what he had to say. So I got
1: to be backstage at the beginning of the show and I got to watch Corbin do his pre-tape as he walked into the arena a bit beforehand. The The backstage is really just their weight room um, but on the day of a show it's everybody's there, they're all in their gear they're all doing stuff. It, it kind of felt like being backstage in the movie The Wrestler. It really is stuff like that. So Corbin opens the show I thought he really pushed through the promo at the beginning as the crowd was chanting bum-ass Corbin and stuff like that. I was surprised he didn't play with the crowd a little bit more. But it was good, and he always thrives in these roles, looking down at younger talent or indie talent. That was always his best NXT gimmick, you know, back in the day. Um, I can't believe he's still using that ridiculous casino music even down here in NXT. I thought this would be a good chance to bring back the I Bring the Darkness theme. That was a Jim Johnston thing. I, I assume WWE can still use that, but I, I couldn't believe they were still doing the weird casino music for him. Wrestling in shorts was weird. It's good. I, th- I think this is ultimately good for Cor- Corbin, but we need a gimmick change down here, too, and he can't just be here to put some other guys over just for that purpose. So we'll see. But opening by thinking we were going to get Corbin Dragon off by the end of the night was awesome. Uh, Trick Williams wasn't bad. So, I mean, ultimately, it was, it was still pretty good. Um, crowd is super, super into
0: trick Williams and mellow in person and, uh, seeing that was pretty cool. So right as NXT was about to end breaker was in the parking lot, shitting on Dragunov, saying he didn't have any special intensity that Braun himself did not have. Then out of absolute nowhere, breaker called out Seth Rollins, daring him to prove that he's actually a workhorse by defending the world heavyweight championship in NXT. And I didn't catch if he said specifically next week, but he did call him out. Now, I should also note that coming out of this, you know, normally Seth Rollins is extremely active on Twitter. So you would say, well, Rollins surely answered him and that would then build the match for NXT. Except Rollins hasn't mentioned that at all. On June 4th, he just showed a clip of a house show. And then on June 7th, he promoted a SmackDown at Madison Square Garden where he's defending the title again against Damian Priest. So Rollins didn't even address this, which makes me believe it's not necessarily going to happen next week, but it might have been a challenge just kind of out there in the ether for the future. Maybe Breaker shows up on Raw because Rollins didn't answer him. There's a lot of ways that this can go. But I mean, holy shit, it is one thing for main roster talents to come down to NXT. For a mid-card or tag team champion to come down, it's one thing for that as well. It is quite another For someone like Rollins to potentially return to NXT and put his title up for grabs, perhaps on a random Tuesday night. This was a great promo from Breaker and a massively intriguing piece of booking that should lead to a significant rating, perhaps next week for those who think the match is happening then, but even long term for whenever they actually book it. We discussed last week how NXT needed to capitalize on its momentum from Battleground and how it already somewhat accomplished that. With Corbin and Mustafa Ali returning last week, well, Rollins would take this to a completely different level. This is very intriguing. Closing with
1: Braun challenging Seth was just wild. Like that came out of nowhere. We thought the show was over while we're there. And then all of a sudden we're getting this promo and you can't quite hear it at first. And then you hear him call out Seth Rollins and you're like, oh crap, holy crap, that's going to be awesome. That's like, that's the exact type of thing we wanted from the World Heavyweight Championship. Just it would get defended. And my understanding from WWE is that Seth is gonna be working Friday, Saturday, Sunday, house shows, then Raw, then NXT. So like that dude is a workhorse. We know that, but I think this this coming weekend is gonna show it. I don't know, man. That's like that's the type of match you thought you might see at WrestleMania or something. Are they gonna follow through on that? I mean, I guess they they kind of teased it, so we'll see. I don't maybe they'll push it push it off to Great American Bash or something, I don't know, but
0: that's going to be really cool to see. It would be interesting if they defended the World Heavyweight Championship on Great American Bash. And then you'd have to main event that over the NXT title, right? So, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to do that, but the whole thing, like I said previously, is pretty intriguing. Danny Palmer fought Blair Davenport. Palmer really didn't get much here, at least as much as I thought. Davenport dominated and won with a turnover Falcon Arrow in about three minutes. Danny's a total neophyte, so... I didn't have much of an issue with the booking, though it would have been nice to see her get more offense and more time, given her athleticism. And the first time we saw her, she got a lot more than she did here. Worse, though, was that this, for me at least, didn't accomplish that much in terms of elevating Blair. So Blair Davenport, Danny Palmer.
1: I was surprised how much offense Danny got in. Uh, I actually saw her do her tryout in Dallas last year, so it's really cool to see how far she's already come to be at the spot. She moves really well in the ring and it sounded like they're really high on her, but considering this is Blair Davenport's like, you know, new big thing. I
0: thought it would be more of a squash than it was. So uh, that was just, that was kind of weird. It's interesting that we had different takes on that given it was the same kind of time time frame type of match. And we also saw it him in person, me on TV. Perhaps I missed a little bit, but I didn't think Palmer got that much offense. Thea Hill was exhausted coming out of a training session with Charlie Dempsey when Duke Hudson came up questioning why she was so excited to work with them when they treated her like shit. It was the first time we really saw Hale in a slightly different setting with a slightly different character, which was nice for a change. Dana Brooke later showed up in the parking lot saying she was entering the number one contendership battle royal with her eyes on taking down Tiffany Stratton. Now we should note, Dana is not a free agent, unlike Corbin and Mustafa Ali, I don't necessarily have a problem with that because it is quote-unquote going down to NXT and not otherwise, but still, it would have been nice if she was a free agent. The champion, uh, Tiffany Stratton, of course, backstage, said she welcomed Brooke challenging and was excited to see all the women envious of her title. She suggested that Lyra Valkyria, who took her to the limit at Battleground, was the only one she could actually see winning the battle royal. Gigi Dolan later spoke to her brother on the phone, with Keanu James clowning her for it and calling her an outcast. Dolan said she'd rather have a rough background than being a stuck-up elitist. Definitely interesting to see Dana show up randomly. Tiffy's promo was 10 times better than last week. The other stuff is a bunch of whatever. I think NXT believes the fans care about Dolan's family, but we really don't. We don't know them. The brother showed up one time, didn't do anything Like, it's kind of time for her to move on. It was one thing to do that with the J.C. Jane feud. It's no longer necessary. So we had the Battle Royal. There were 17 women in the match at the Bell. Dana wore gear, paying homage to her NXT debut eight years ago. Thea was a wild woman early in this match and got dropped face first onto the steel steps. Davenport entered to point out Roxanne Perez and started a brawl. Tatum Paxley, who was still in the match, sacrificed herself with a crossbody off the apron to take an elimination. Extremely odd booking but it does seem like she might be now in a tag team with Blair. Cora Jade, Dana, Kiana, and Fallon Henley wound up as the final four. Henley had a great flip over elimination of James. Jade eliminated Henley while she was brawling with Brooke on the apron. Then Thea emerged out of nowhere, reminding everyone basically that she was never formally eliminated. So that made a new final three. Jade dodged tail, leading her to take out Brooke with a crossbody. The faces then combined to eliminate Jade, but Hale simultaneously pushed Brooke over the ropes for the massive upset victory for the Neophyte. JSU students stormed the ring with the Cavender Twins, NIL uh, women's basketball signees from Miami, who will probably never wrestle in WWE and have not signed with WWE. despite people suggesting otherwise, it's just not true. Uh, they carried her on their shoulders. Hudson also joined the in-ring celebration, while Dempsey and Drew Gulak gave her a round of applause from the ramp. It was a decent battle royal, nothing that special, but Hale winning was a brilliant surprise, at least for me, and the post-match celebration was an absolute blast for her. Just a really fun moment in which to end a wrestling show. I forgot if I mentioned this was the main event. It was, but good work by all involved. Diamond Mine fought Schism. Everyone was active here except for Joe Gacy. Julius Creed did the super extended vertical suplex spot. Brutus Creed did a standing shooting star press, which really should not be possible for a guy like him. Then Ivy Nile vertical suplexed Brutus in a trio of really six spots between all of them. Julius later did a straight running box jump to the top rope for a moonsault. After a distraction, Ava headbutted Ivy while wearing a mask, covering her for the win. It was an unfortunate but appropriate end to a really fun mixed six-person tag team match. Ivy continues to show market improvements while Ava remains extremely green, but the creeds absolutely showed out more than anyone in this match. It was a blast from bell to bell. Diamond Mine as a three-person group, it is just shining, and I don't really mean to have a pun there when I say that, but they are. They're super talented. They work perfectly together as a trio, Ivy being the little sister who beats up and doesn't take her big brother's shit. Of course, they're not really related, but it just works together. They all have a look that matches. They get along seemingly inside and out of the ring, both on screen and off screen. And this Diamond Mine group, man, like I liked what they did and all the incarnations of it that preceded this, but the trio that remains works extremely well. And I do hope that they keep them together for a very, very long time.
1: So I'd never noticed it before, but I love the schism theme, the theme song. Like, it's awesome. I put it on my phone literally after the show. I just, it's catchy as hell. Really like it. Didn't love Diamond Mind losing to them, but it was classic wrestling shenanigans. Wins and losses don't really mean all that much in NXT. uh, But Diamond Mind as a threesome, seeing them in person, they are freaking cool as hell, man. I Keep that trio together. They can do so many fun, awesome things that nobody else can do. I think Diamond Mind is a threesome. You could put them on the main roster right now, I think. I think they're that cool and they're that talented. Uh, They all individually rule as well. Like Ivy Nile, she's small, but she's super strong, fits in there with the greens. Seeing that all in person was just really, really awesome. Also, I'm 99% sure Danny Garcia was in the crowd to watch Schism and Diamond Mind. Uh, for her daughter uh, and so Ava I got the pin that was all really cool that's really cool for that family and everything so uh, that's one other thing I guess I wanted to note I don't think they said it on tv but yeah Dana Garcia uh, her mom rocks wife business partner uh, yeah she was there so that was cool
0: Mustafa Ali fought Joe Gacy, which is why he was not in the other match. Ali backstage said he was focused on becoming a champion. Wesley jumped in, all excited to see Ali in NXT. Ali said he had no interest in being handed an opportunity. He wanted to earn it. Ali hit a rolling neckbreaker and a 450 splash for the relatively easy win. He was immediately attacked by Dyad after the bell, with Wesley and Tyler Bate making the save. Gacy later said he needed to reflect on his loss and help strengthen their group again. The rest said they had his back. Ali later got Wesley and Bate back on the same page for a match next week while also instigating a one-on-one match between them, meaning Ali and Bate, for the future that kind of went over nicely with the baby faces, but it was interesting that he was setting up a title match for someone else, despite saying he wanted a title match and he wanted to earn it, so shouldn't he be the one winning his way into the title match? It was just a little strange. Uh, it was actually shocking how quickly Ali dispatched of Gacy, given He's been a legitimate upper mid-carder in NXT, and we're gonna get the six-man match, which should be interesting. I enjoyed the bonus backstage angles to add context to the earlier booking decision and provide storylines for future booking with all six of these guys. They took an angle that was only moderately interesting and provided enough bonus storylines to keep it top of mind. When it came to Gacy talking about reevaluating Schism Schism and, and making sure that they're successful, I do wonder if that is what leads to like the excommunication of Dyad because they are their contracts are ending and presumably, I assume they're remaining in their mindset that they're not gonna re-sign with WWE, which of course should have never changed them from Grizzled Young Veterans in the first place, but I digress. So that could lead to them getting excommunicated and Gacy maybe adding new people to his team or to his group, I should say. We'll see if that's exactly what's gonna happen here or if it's a throwaway line that I'm taking to mean more than it actually does. Uh, Stax visited Tony D'Angelo in prison with them commiserating about the rat and Tony saying it's obvious that it's Gallus. Uh, he warned Stax that he can't be going after them one-on-three anymore and he needs backup, which, yeah, is exactly what we said last week. This was just okay. Don't have much of a takeaway from it other than that it was C-movie acting. Hard-hitting home truths with Nathan Fraser returned as he continued to sit above the augmented reality desk. He had problems with Noam Dar's new group and brought in Dragon Lee, as an international correspondent. So Dragon did a top five list of names for Dar's group, and the list was like mediocre at best from a creativity entertainment standpoint. Frazier then challenged Dar for the Heritage Cup next week, with Dragon Lee promising to be in his corner. This may have been the best of these hard-hitting home truth segments so far, but it's still weak as hell. Again, I repeat, if you're going to do a comedy segment, it needs to be funny above all else. And none of this is funny. Dar later said his crew was a bunch of shooting stars with unlimited potential. He put them all over individually with each of them cutting short promos themselves. He referred to their group as the Metaphor, which I thought was perhaps the worst name in for a group in professional wrestling history. I mean, as bad as like the Viking experience. And then I realized it's actually the M-E-T-A Four, M E T A F O U R, not Metaphor which completely saved it, because it's a play on words. It's still obnoxious as hell, but it's purposefully obnoxious and perfectly obnoxious for those people. He also seemed to accept Frazier's challenge. This hit pretty well, and next week's match should bang. Idris Anofe and Malik Blade confronted Briggs and Jensen, angry that they started the whole partner-fighting-partner trend. Tank Ledger and Hank Walker came in, showing their newfound partnership, bothering Anofe and Blade even more. Gallus then came in to scoff at them as a team, with Inofi and Blade realizing they needed to follow in the footsteps of the others and fight each other next week to get closer. It's not like this has never happened in wrestling, but I cannot remember a longer-term storyline version of this concept. And it's been pretty fun so far. I'm definitely interested to see whether Inofi turns on Blade after the match or if they actually come together as well. I do find it to be pretty fun stuff.
1: I like this little backstage thing with with Tank and Hank, the newlyweds game they were doing with the other teams. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, Tank Ledger, uh, another guy who wasn't even, uh, got his tryout a year ago. He's not even a year into WWE. I talked to him when I was down there, former Northwestern player. He is going to be, I don't know if he's going to be a star, but he is the star of NXT's media promotion. They have him do everything. He's super outgoing, really great to, uh, communicate with Tank Ledger. I don't know if that will be his full-time name or whatever in the future, but he is going to have a very, very bright future in WWE. Also, I, I kind of actually got a little spoiler uh, not from him but from uh, from someone in NXT about what the next few weeks of that story is going to be, and I think you guys are going to like it, so stay tuned to what those tag teams are doing the next couple weeks. I think this to be pretty cool.
0: Uh, Eddie Thorpe fought Damon Kemp. Thorpe beat Kemp with a German suplex into the corner. Kemp got his foot on the middle rope and bottom rope, actually, touched both of them, but the referee missed it while counting the fall. So there's gonna be a rematch here, most likely. It was still ridiculously short, even given the storyline finish. Scripps fought Daba Kato. Scripps got his ass kicked when Axiom appeared on the steel steps to distract Kato from putting Scripps into the announce table. Axiom distracted again with a leap off the top rope, giving Scripps an opening for a tope move and roll up for the surprise win. Kato lifted and dropped him after the bell. Then he double chokeslammed Axiom into scripts to end the entire thing. I cannot, for the life of me, understand why Cato took a loss in a spot like this, especially to someone who is not over whatsoever. If it's someone who's over and you're just kind of elevating them even more then Cato gets his revenge, it's okay. But this was just confusing. I, I just, I don't really like what they're doing here with scripts and Axiom. And again, they still haven't explained scripts. I told you last week they would never explain it and they still haven't. Uh, Vaughn Wagner and Mr. Stone were at a therapy appointment. We saw clips of them struggling with prior therapists. Wagner was against trying another one until it turned out to be a beautiful woman doctor. Then he was all about it. Again, not really enjoying what they're doing here. I will admit though that out of all of the segments they've done together to this point, this was the most enjoyable. And I think it got a smirk for me while I was watching it, while most of the others have not. So that was NXT. This week, a really intriguing, interesting episode. Obviously, we have the WWE main roster talents coming down, three of them on the show, plus the call-out for Rollins. We'll see what comes to that. But NXT running hot. I believe its ratings have been consistent the last couple of weeks. They're doing much better than they had been, especially in the demo. And the arrow does seem to be pointing up for NXT. Beyond all of that, Nick Khan actually said, in an interview this week that they are considering turning NXT into a third brand. Yes, kind of going from developmental to third brand to developmental, which it is now, and then possibly back to third brand. He said that in the context of media rights. He wants a third partner along with USA Network slash Fox if they renew both of those. He's looking for perhaps a third partner that might take NXT and pay more money for it. And he pointed to the ratings improving as part of that and also the fact that that brand is talented and people are being developed down there. Whether that happens, we'll see. I think the deal with USA Network for NXT and the way it's operating right now is pretty good. My biggest issue with it remains the fact that it's not promoted enough on Raw Monday night beyond just like, here's a video advertisement for NXT, but more like infusion of storylines between the two shows or showing clips to convince people to go watch the other show It's just frustrating to me that they don't do that as much as they should because they should be wanting high viewership on that show. And the best thing you can do is take an audience of 2 million and say, hey, look at this other product that we have that only 600,000 of you are watching. That's a 1.4 million gap. You don't have to get all of them and you're not gonna get all of them. But over time, you should be able to get another 150,000, another 200,000, and they should be that demo, the 18 to 49 demo, because this new NXT does skew younger. So I wish they would take a little bit more time on that. But look, the last two weeks for NXT and for AEW as well, You know, sometimes these episodes, you all know, you listen to them, Silver King's in a bad mood and he doesn't really like what he got on Tuesday and Wednesday night. But the last two weeks, it's been some damn good wrestling. And I wasn't able to watch it live Tuesday or Wednesday, which put me in the type of mindset where like when I watch it on DVR, it's like, oh, I gotta go through this. I wasn't able to just take care of it live. So for me to enjoy shows that I DVR'd, means they were really good. So as you can tell, Silver King, in a good mood, enjoyed NXT and AEW this week. Raw on Monday night was great, we talked about it. And of course, we had the big Roman Reigns bloodline segment with Jimmy Uso from SmackDown. So wrestling over the last week has me in a great mindset. I've been thrilled to talk about it, with all of you, and I appreciate Vintage Chris Vanini giving us that digest from Orlando at the Performance Center for his first ever NXT episode live. On the way out, allow me to remind you once again that this podcast is all about defy. So leave those five-star ratings on Apple and Spotify. Leave a five-star review on Apple. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. I mention it every episode, but the reviews are important. So please do that, and the ratings are too. If you have the opportunity, you have the time, please do it for us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, all that good stuff. Again, on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And remember, I happen to love the number five. So become an official Getting Overhead. Only $5 a month. You get bonus audio, news posts, and more. But more importantly, you're supporting myself and Vintage doing this show for you. 451 episodes into this show already 500 is approaching quick one of the busiest summers in professional wrestling that i can remember is ahead so folks make sure if you're a first-time listener you subscribe and make sure you at least consider contributing to becoming an official getting overhead once again buymeacoffee.com slash getting over thank you all for listening to this edition of the getting over wrestling podcast it is time for the silver king to sign off and leave you with just three final words bye for now (laughs) I'm going to go.